It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And today on Passing Shot Meets, we're in conversation with two-time mixed doubles Grand Slam champion, Gabby Dabrowski. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And welcome back to another episode of Passing Shot Meets, where today we are joined by the current WTA world number seven doubles player, Gabby Dabrowski. Many of you, of course, will know Gabby as a two-time Grand Slam champion, having won the 2018 Australian Open and 2017 French Open mixed doubles titles. Uh, She became Canada's first female Grand Slam champion. Gabby, uh, welcome to the show. It's a, a real pleasure to have you on. Our first professional player onto the show. Uh, of course, we're very excited to kind of get to grips and learn a bit more about you and learn a bit more about your story in tennis and as well as get your views on some of the kind of the hot issues at the moment in, in the tennis world. But, uh, but before I guess we get into all of that, um, how are you doing? How have the last couple of months uh, been for you? I understand, I think, are you in, are you in Canada? How have you, uh, have you been keeping busy? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm actually in the U.S. right now. I uh, I stayed in the U.S. after Indian Wells was canceled back in March. Um, I train at Saddlebrook in Florida. So I was there until last week when I actually flew to Boston to work with um, a fitness trainer that I like and uh, practice with one of my friends on tour, Ala Kudryavtseva. So I'm here right now in Boston. Very nice. I, I'm a big fan of Boston myself, and um, I, I, it's good that you've been, you know, keeping busy and and getting getting back out onto the court. And well, I assume you've been on a court the whole time. If you've been um, at your training base, is that correct? You haven't been sort of stuck inside like some of the other players. <laughs> I've definitely been very lucky and I could have been on the court, but I chose not to be on the court All that right. much. Uh, <laughs> I kind of gave myself a break from the tennis side of things, but I was keeping in shape, you know, working out five or six times a week. So I was definitely very fortunate to be able to stay active and at least maintain my, my fitness levels throughout the break. Oh, that's great. That's great. You'll be ready to go when it kicks off again. Um, let's kind of, we'll get on to, you know, um, upcoming tennis and the start of the season in, in a mo. But um, let's kind of start off with a bit about yourself and kind of your background in tennis. Um, many of our listeners will know you, of course, but some some may not. So perhaps you could just give us a bit of an introduction um, to yourself. Like, when did you when did you get started in tennis and how, how did you get into the sport? Sure. So I started playing when I was seven years old in Canada. Um, It was the summer when 
uh, both my parents, they were working. And so my dad's, one of his best friends from uh, Poland, she came, she was actually living in France at the time. So she came with her son and was kind of looking after me. And uh, so her son and I, we would, um, you know, play together, learn together. She was trying to teach me French and uh, my, my father is Polish. And so that's how he knows her. And so she was also trying to make sure I was like maintaining my Polish <laughs> speaking <laughs> skills. <laughs> um, but got kind of bored of that midway through summer. And so me and her son, her son's name is Christian. We went to the park. That's like just two minutes from my house. And we started to try to hit the ball around. And I think that's sort of a different start than most tennis players because usually um, somebody in their family plays, whether it's their parents or a sibling, and they get you know dragged to the tennis courts and then things kind of evolve naturally. But my situation was a little bit different. And uh, after that, yeah, I just started taking lessons at a local tennis club, uh, kind of what I guess then it became more normal, like what everybody else does. And then you you pick up um, the sport pretty quickly, I'd say, at that age, and you do the kids' clinics, and you get private lessons, and then um, you start to play local tournaments. Then we have provincial tournaments, the national tournaments, and then as you age, international tournaments, and you start traveling around. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it kind of just spirals that way. <laughs> so before you know it, you're you're on the you're on the tour already, and uh, you know yeah. I think. I'll- I think a lot of our, you know, our listeners obviously know you as a, I think right now as a, as a double specialist. Um, but obviously, you know, I, yeah, I guess you kind of fell into the game, you know, playing in kind of singles competition. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of curious as to whether, you know, when did you realize of, you know, you wanted to make that transition from, you know, a singles game to a, to a doubles game? Um, so I was, uh, in my early twenties and well, you know, when you, when you grew up playing tennis, you don't necessarily think, oh, my number one goal is to be a double specialist. You know, your goals are always in singles and then playing doubles is like a bonus and an extra and something fun that you kind of add on to. So when I was growing up, it was my goal to be good in both singles and doubles. But there was a time in my early 20s when uh, basically running out of money (laughs) and uh, I was floating around the 200 mark in singles, which meant I was getting into the Grand Slam qualifying but never really going further than a round or so. And I just knew that to make it to the next level, I needed a coach to help me because uh, I was pretty much going it alone, but I really could not afford one. So there was sort of a, a turning point when it was like, what do I do? I can't really continue like this because at 200 in the world, you don't make enough money to to sustain yourself financially in the sport. Um, and then I don't have enough money to invest in a coach to make me better. So what do I do? And uh, had discussions with my parents and other people. And it was kind of like, well, why don't you try playing more doubles? Because your tennis skill set seems tailored a little bit more towards doubles. Like I have a very all court game. Um, I'm not like a power baseliner. I love to be at net. I love drop shots and lobs and slices and kind of the more finesse side side of the game. So that's kind of what I did. I ended up um, pursuing pursuing doubles more and putting singles on the back burner. 
And I was really fortunate enough to play, uh, partner up with some amazing women who, you know, maybe um, had been very highly ranked, but then their ranking had dropped. So they were coming back through like the ITF and the challenger level to try to build themselves back up again. So I was really lucky to partner with them. And it's funny because Ala Kudravtseva, who's, who's, um, who I'm staying with in Boston, she was one of those people. Um, I think she had been probably... I don't know, very highly ranked in doubles and in singles uh, before she she got injured and was coming back. So that's one of the people uh, I would say that that helped me a lot. And um, then once you win some more tournaments, obviously your ranking improves and you just want to keep going. And it was always my goal to to play all the big tournaments on tour and the slams and maybe even the Olympics. And so doubles became my gateway to that. And uh, luckily I was able to achieve it. Oh, that's fantastic. I think, you know, um, I, I know that you're quite active on Twitter, like promoting doubles um, to the kind of tennis community, which I love. I mean, I love doubles and I don't think it gets enough, you know, attention and, and the respect that it deserves. But what is it? I know, I know you said, obviously it was kind of financial reasons that kind of drew, drew you to kind of go towards it and initially, but for some of our listeners who maybe haven't watched so much doubles, you know, what is it that attracts you to the doubles court? What what are the main kind of merits that you can kind of tell us about doubles that you've kind of grown to love so much? Well, I think it's nice to be out there with a partner and problem solving together. I think that's a really nice feeling when you kind of get over a hump during a match and the momentum starts, uh, you know, going in your favor and you, you realize like, oh, like the end is near, like we figured it out. And that adrenaline that's building, that's really exciting. And, you know, winning matches when you've been down, even losing matches and then learning from them and doing better in tournaments that follow, I think that's very satisfying because it shows um, this like nice uh, teamwork and, and growth mindset that you guys have together as partners. Obviously, you don't always play with the same person, but that is an advantage of playing with the same person is that you're able to grow together and build your games together. Um, and I mean, I like I like problem solving and I like the strategy that doubles allows uh, in, in singles. Of course, there's strategy, but the game is a lot more on the physical side. And in doubles, you really have to be smart. You can't just have a strong baseline game. Well, I mean, you can, I think, but the majority of really good doubles players are able to play from all sides of the court. And they not only have good ground strokes, but good serves, good overheads, good swinging volleys, good volleys. They know when to use the lob. And so those sorts of skills um, are kind of what I like about tennis and it doubles allows me to use them a lot more. Yeah, I think it's, I think what's so great about doubles is, you know, you've got the, you can use the whole court, including the, the tram lines, and that op- almost opens it up to, as you said, kind of the finesse and the angles and being able to have like, you know, the variety that you might not be able to get, um, you know, on a, on a singles court. Um, just kind of talk to us just briefly about, you know, you, you did, you've just told us about the, you know, the brand of tennis that you play in terms of you like to, you like to be at the net, you like to do the, the, the finesse shots. Um, is that something kind of you have worked on over the years or did you kind of go into kind of the doubles game, you know, with that already? And, you know, when you kind of look at, you know, what your kind of strengths are, are you looking to find, you know, ideally a partner who has a, a different brand of tennis so you can, you know, bring two different brands of tennis to, to a tennis court? Yeah. Um, in terms of partners, uh, 
for sure somebody who complements your game, someone who can balance you out is is definitely a good option. I don't think there's necessarily like a perfect formula for the perfect doubles team because I think there are teams that play similarly that can be really good as well but I do think that finding that balance can be helpful because then you can set each other up you know if I play with somebody who's very strong from the baseline they can set me up at the net and I can put the volleys away whereas someone who has less power from the baseline you know their strengths would probably be up at net so we need to position ourselves a little bit differently to win the point um in terms of my game evolving I think Honestly, since I was young, I always loved coming to the net. I always loved using those shots. It's sort of been ingrained in me. I think also growing up in Canada, uh, where so much of the year you have to play indoors and sometimes Mm -hmm. you couldn't get court time. So I would do things like in the basement of my house with my dad. And uh, so we would set up like the ball machine in the corner of the basement. We put like a curtain over the, over the, um, (laughs) the wall so we don't (laughs) kill the wall and the ball machine would just fire fireballs at me and I would have to react. So maybe some of my reactionary skills grew then. (laughs) Um, We had like also this little, little volleyball net, but we put it like, you know, so it was in line with the ground. And (laughs) so it was kind of these like little makeshift drills that I would do at home that were probably more for somebody who was going to take the ball out of the air <laughs> more mm. than let it bounce yeah. maybe because <laughs> you're just limited, limited on space. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, I think over time um, it just, I just maybe figured out a way to use those skills more in doubles than I was ever able to in singles. Mm. I have to say, I think when you see, when you see a doubles match and all the players are at the net, I think it almost creates like the most thrilling sort of points for, for fans. And it always kind of opens it up. Yeah. You know, it can always open up to kind of really, I guess, really exciting moments. And, um, you know, let's, I think kind of, let's just move on really now to this, this season. We're kind of coming back into, you know, the tour and the, you know, the, with the tour starting up again and particularly with, you know, with the Grand Slams. And, um, you know, one of the reasons actually we wanted to bring you onto the show was I know you've been quite vocal on Twitter about, uh, you know, about doubles and particularly with, you know, the US Open and kind of all the recent announcements going on. Now, for our listeners uh, who might not be aware, the fact that you know, the US Open at the moment currently is going to be no mixed doubles the draws for the men's doubles and ladies doubles have, are going to be restricted um, and shrunk down. There's going to be no qualifying. You know, I know you've written a, you know, a massive piece about this on, on Twitter, which um, is really kind of interesting and insightful as a, as a player, I guess kind of, I just want to kind of ask you a few questions based on that um, through kind sure. of the, the doubles perspective and then kind of the player safety perspective, I guess kind of, first of all, on a kind of a, through the, the doubles lens is kind of, you know, what was your initial reaction to kind of when you you heard the the announcement? Were you, you know, were you surprised? Um, were you kind of uh, expecting it? What was your kind of gut reaction when you when you when you first heard about it? When I first heard about it, we had had a meeting with the U.S. Open, USTA, and that was a few weeks, I think, before the official announcement. But the meeting was it was not like oh, we're meeting so we can get your feedback and so we can take things into consideration and we can, you know, make some tweaks and stuff before we finalize our plan. It was like just being told what was up. And so 
I, as a player, obviously didn't really appreciate that because it felt like the decisions were already made without consulting the players, even though we are such an integral part of the event. <laughs> and uh, so that, that um, it was interesting because, you know, even someone from the USDA was like, so you guys don't have any more questions. And we just kind of were in silence because there was really nothing to say because everything had been decided. You know, it's not like we could really give feedback and, and in that moment and feel like anything would happen. So we, we thought about it and we gave a little bit of feedback. So one small positive thing that did change was having the doubles draw uh, be doubles only ranking rather than best of ranking, which allows more doubles teams to get into the doubles draw rather than, you know, filling it up with a lot of singles players. So that was one positive, I guess, that came out of that meeting. But other than that, nothing else changed. Um, one thing, like, there are lots of things that don't make sense to me. Um, and I've inquired about them and I've tried to understand, but it just kind of feels like everything is already in motion. And there were certain parameters that the UST and US Open had to meet to be able to make a proposal, give it to the government and have it be approved. However, I wonder if, you know, things will change um, a little bit more now. Uh, I'm not sure, like in terms of the bubble, um, how that's going to work, because have you seen, you know, in, in some other events that players have tested positive when there is a very, when there are loose, very loose restrictions, but then at the same time, how do you enforce a bubble? Like, how are you going to police that? How do you make sure that people aren't gonna, (laughs) uh, get like leave the hotel and the venue and go into Manhattan? Like, I think it's really, really hard to do that. And I think obviously some players are less concerned than others about, the bubble. So it's just, it's just very tough because testing pot, there's such a big consequence with testing positive because we will all be tested several times during the event. And that means, you know, your immediate withdrawal from the tournament, you immediately go into isolation at the hotel until you test negative. And we don't know when you will test negative. Um, that could be two weeks. It could be five weeks. I've heard that some people have even had it for longer. So to me, that's kind of the scary part of moving forward with all of this. Of course, it's really sad on top of that to not have a proper qualifying draw, to not have a full doubles draw, to not have mixed doubles. Cause I always love those aspects of the slams. And I love the story of the qualifier winning three tough matches, getting into Maine, you know, that sets them up for the rest of the year that allows them to invest more in themselves and be better players. Maybe that meant they have just broken into the top 100 for the first time. Like that's so cool. And obviously mixed doubles is such an interesting and unique like dynamic. I obviously love playing mixed doubles. It's like <laughs> one of my favorite things to do, if not my favorite thing to do in tennis. So I'm really disappointed that that, you know, was taken away. And so just touching on mixed doubles, because I feel like at the moment, there's this sort of neglect um, of mixed doubles on the tour. You know, we saw the Hotman Cup get axed uh, in favor of the ATP Cup. The fact that there's going to be at the moment no mixed doubles um, at the US Open. Like, what's your kind of take on this? Uh, as you say, you've just told us you love mixed doubles, but 
why why doesn't the you know why doesn't the tour seem to 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 love mixed doubles because it feels like at the moment there's a big opportunity here you know fans absolutely love it we we see that but there's not really there's there's few opportunities at the moment it feels like for for mixed doubles really to to showcase itself as an event definitely i mean i've i've loved mixed doubles ever since i first played it years ago at wimbledon for the first time and I lost in the first round, but I didn't even mind because it was just such a joy to to play with a guy and against a girl. Like it's just so different, you know. And trying to like return the guy's serve, and then when you return the guy's serve, it's like sometimes they're surprised, but you feel so cool <laughs> doing it, you know. And you know when someone um, is like hitting the ball at you at the net, maybe at a speed that's a little faster than what you're used to, and you're reflexing the volley back, like that feels really good. And I think it is a fan favorite. Um, I just think in general, doubles really flies under the radar in tennis, um, doubles and mixed doubles. So that's probably one of the reasons why um, it was not, it was probably one of the first things I guess to go, which I can, I understand it in terms maybe of safety because, I guess you could argue that in doubles you're closer to each other than you are in singles. But at the same time, I mean, like we're already there. Like it's not like mm. new, new people are coming in for mixed doubles. Like it's already the players that are in the singles or the doubles draws that would be playing mixed doubles. It's rare, maybe like one wild card team or something that's not there, you know, will come in that's that's not in another draw so in that sense it's just kind of sad that we're not going to be able to have that and on top of that it doubles you know doubles prize money is is not that high uh and is very low compared to singles and mixed doubles is where a lot of the doubles players get that extra income too to help to, to support themselves so it's yeah, it's it's pretty disappointing. I'm really gonna miss it if I if I end up playing. Yeah, I think um that's a really good point actually that you raised about most mixed doubles, you know, players are already gonna be competing in either the singles or doubles draws anyway. So it does seem like they genuinely could have had the mixed doubles this year at the US Open. And I mean, maybe one of the arguments is that they need to limit, you know, the total number of players on the site, but also there's been um a lot of sort of coverage about the, the top players uh, perhaps moaning that they're only able to bring like one or two or three people from their entourage with them. Um, and some have perhaps argued that, you know, mixed doubles and qualifying, they're being cut to allow for kind of, um, you know, more people than than perhaps necessary, to, you know, for the top players to come with them to form part of their team. And and do you think like therefore that's if that is the case and that's the reason that they're doing it is that just going to create a bigger gap between like the top players who are kind of able to have their say and the organisations kind of can cave into their demands a bit more um, and everyone else is kind of left to lump it and, and get on with it do you, are you you know does this make you worry more for the future of the sport and and the fact that the gap's going to widen between the kind of two extremes. Yeah, of course. I mean, initially, when we heard the proposal, it was an adamant plus one. It was an adamant only one team member per mm. player. And then the top players got wind of that. And they were like, but how can we do that when we have, 
this support team that we need, you know, fitness trainer, physio, coach, whatever it may be, and whatever they're used to, which is fine because that's what they are used to. So I can understand that all of a sudden coming to a tournament without their support team, um, it maybe doesn't, maybe won't allow them to perform at their best levels. But at the same time, 90% of everybody else, you know, travels with maybe one person Mm -hmm. or, one person and maybe a family member or something like that. And in doubles, sometimes one person or nobody at all because (laughs) the financial side doesn't allow it. So like I get that top players would be concerned about that. I'm not really mad about that. I understand it. What I wish they would have said was like, Hey, I mean, do you guys think we can actually still stay healthy with not having our team? But if you allow us to have our team, then why can't we have a bigger qualifying draw or a bigger doubles draw? Because like I said, I think initially they were trying to keep the numbers down so that when they made their proposal to the government that they would say, okay, these numbers look acceptable. But I would be curious to see if the U.S. Open changed their mind and would begin to allow a plus two or plus three or whatever it may be and if that is the case, then it wasn't a numbers issue at all. It would mm-hmm. mean something else entirely. So I haven't heard a final answer on the number of team mm-hmm. members allowed. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see. About yeah, that. I mean, there's still kind of, you know, six weeks or so until it's due to begin. I'm sure there's room for some changes still. And, and they had to uh, do a U-turn on the wheelchair event as well because that was another event that was just kind of left by the wayside and I don't think there was any consultation with the wheelchair uh, guys on that either I mean do you worry that um you know future grand slams are just going to be marginalizing events left right and center you know because of coronavirus and everything that we've we know it's things are going to change and I don't know if Roland Garros have um kind of made any announcements to this to this regard but do you worry that it's just going to be the case for that as well I think it's very possible that it could set a precedent like you said in these times um, we there is no kind of playbook for it so everyone's just kind of adjusting as best as they can but for sure a grand slam making a decision like that could other tournaments also or other slams also say oh we don't we don't want as big draw sizes because we want to keep the numbers down it's possible but then it's up to the WTA to not allow that to happen at WTA tournaments the slams are kind of their own entities so Mm. we don't really have a whole lot of control there they kind of just do as they please which is a little bit scary but that's sort of the issue that tennis has having seven different governing bodies with four slams ATP WTA and ITF so um, I, I, I am concerned for the future, but I'm hoping that the governing bodies can work together to come to some fair solutions rather than just sort of each having their own agenda and following that. Yeah, I think, I think almost kind of what the, the scariest thing is that, um, you know, you could look at, you know, if the US Open were to go ahead, you know, tomorrow, you could almost kind of say it's like a, a US Open sort of light version. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there might not be any qualifying, you're not, you might not get as many 
upsets or you know those great sort of under underdog stories and you know i just wanted to know what's kind of your stance on do you know does that make it does that potentially diminish you know the achievements the fact that you know if draw sizes are shrunk and there are less players therefore less you know potential for upset do you think that you know maybe uh, you know would you have to have like a little asterisk next to it to be like, well, actually the, the draw was shrunk because, um, you know, and it, yeah, is it, does it feel like a, a Grand Slam light version or do you feel like it still feels like a proper Grand Slam? Oh, it definitely doesn't feel like a proper Grand Slam. And that's the feedback that I've been getting from a lot of players as well. A lot of players whom would have been in qualifying and they're saying, you know, I worked so hard to get my ranking into a place where I could be in a Grand Slam, and now that chance has been taken away from me. So I definitely don't think it's a regular Grand Slam. Uh, I don't Mm. think you're wrong in terms of looking at it like there's an asterisk next to the winner. I I don't think that's too far off the mark there. Yeah, I think um, it's going to be in the history books. It's going to be, there'll just be question marks, I suppose, however you want to look at it, um, which is such a shame because for whoever does win, um, it, it maybe people, yeah, will be not giving them the, the credit that, you know, is still is still due. I mean, let's, let's look okay. at it. Let's look at the kind of player safety element. Um, I mean, how, how safe do you kind of personally feel? I mean, I know we're kind of a a good number of weeks away from it at the moment and there's going to be, um, you know, testing on site as, as you alluded to earlier, um, and various measures. But I mean, do you personally feel like safe? Are you going to be like anxious about being so kind of close to so many other, you know, people from that have flown in from all over the world? Oh. I'm already anxious about it because I have no control over anybody else. I can only control myself and Mm. even controlling myself as best as I can doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always going to test negative because if you even look at the schedule past the U.S. Open, we're supposed to be going to Madrid, Rome, Paris, and then Mm. like six weeks in Asia. So in different, different cities and different countries there. So how 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 much control do you really have over this? Yes, you can do the best that you can in terms of wearing your mask and washing your hands and not touching your face. You can do everything right and, and maybe even still get it. But we don't have all of the data yet. And that's kind of the scary part for me is in the beginning, it was, oh, only only old people are going to be harmed from it. And now I'm hearing, oh, no, the virus is mutating, which is why, like, now some kids are getting it or some, you know, healthy adults are getting it and still end up in the hospital. So it's really hard to say I don't feel safe right now. Um, I wish I could say that I did. I don't know if the world situation is going to change in the next month or so. I mean, I hope so for everybody's sake. But at the same time, I feel like one month for, for things to improve is not that much time, especially you've seen a lot of the spikes in the U.S. in states like Florida and and California and other places. And now even New York has a 14-day quarantine for anybody traveling from a lot of these states that had uh, spikes. So how does that work for the athletes? You know, I, I don't love short-term solutions I would rather look long-term and Mm -hmm. so for me you know in tennis like there are tournaments 
and players and players are the product and tournaments are the supplier and like fans are the consumers. So like if we end up getting sick or injured or even mentally, you know, um, affected from all the stress and, and potentially testing positive, then it's like, do you even have a good quality product to deliver long-term? Uh, it's, I feel like there's so many variables right now, mm. which is what concerns me the most. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think everyone is a bit anxious given, you know, as you alluded to earlier, all the stuff going on in, you know, the Baltics and the, 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 Adria, the Adria cup, uh, you know, with, you know, Novak Djokovic and a whole host of, you know, players, uh, testing positive, um, you know, can you give us a sense of kind of what's the, you know, the feeling in the locker room? It's like, um, yeah, I feel like there is this, yeah, there is this kind of cloud of, um, uncertainty and this, um, you know, anxiousness. Um, do you think it's, you know, the anxiousness is like almost so much that people might make their own call and say, actually, I'm not going to play the US Open. Or do you think, you know, the pull of playing a Grand Slam and, you know, getting back out onto a tennis court where, you know, I'm potentially going to be starting to, you know, earn a living again. Um, do you think that's almost kind of too great? And that's, is that maybe where almost kind of the, you know, the friction comes in because people might prioritize that over safety fears? Well, yes, <laughs> um, there there are both sides um, for the players right now. Some players are like, I will not travel unless there's a vaccine. Some are really scared to travel and don't want to be forced to travel, kind of what you alluded to, because they have parents or grandparents that are immunocompromised. So that would mean that they wouldn't be able to go home until really late in the season, you know, having to maybe quarantine somewhere else before they go home, all this kind of stuff. Um, there are players that uh, a lot of European, well, not a lot, but some European players that are like, I will not, I do not want to come to the U.S. for any tournaments. I want to wait and travel more locally, uh, which I find uh, they, they feel that that's safer, which is very fair. There are a lot of players that can't believe that Asia is still on the calendar. So, and then of course there are players that will just play under any circumstances because like you said, they just want the playing opportunity. They want, they need the money, whatever it may be, you know? So I think you kind of have a whole different group of opinions but at the same time right now I'd say at least about half if not more are really concerned about travel I'd say probably even more now because of the spikes that are happening around um so I think it's just a matter of to continue hearing the players and listening to their concerns and their feedback and how they're feeling and for us like on council and stuff we're trying to figure out the best solution for players that are unable to travel because maybe their borders are closed or there's a quarantine if they come back and they don't want to leave or whatever it may be, or players that just choose not to, even though their borders are open because they don't feel safe. Um, and then also a solution for the players that do want to play if we are able to move forward. Uh, it's, it's a lot. Yes. <laughs> there's not, um, I don't think there's going to be a perfect solution that is fair for everyone, which is another concern of mine. And that's why I'm hesitant to say, oh, yeah, I think we should start right away because, um, like Kimmy mentioned, about uh, maybe more disparity between uh, the top 
and the rest, I don't want to see that happen either. So there's just really a lot to kind of take into consideration. And, and I've reached out to players and we've sent out a survey and I think we're going to send out a follow-up survey um, this week or next to gain more feedback and kind of see the pattern of thinking or try to create a pattern of thinking and see if it's improving or it's getting worse and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you're so active on this issue, you know, and, and the player council. And I mean, I suppose with the US Open and, and the French Open, like as a as a tournament, they didn't have the pandemic insurance that Wimbledon had sort of conveniently taken out a couple of years back. And it feels like to us that they've been forced into putting the event on, you know, because they don't want to lose however much money. And, you know, as a result, they've kind of not consulted the players and they've just come up with um, a plan and that's kind of, you've got to take it or leave it. And it seems that obviously some players, despite their, you know, concerns and fears over the safety, they they feel like they have to play because that's, you know, it's the job at the end of the day and they need the money. So I think it's great if, if there is room for kind of providing an alternative to those players that, that aren't able to go or aren't, um, you know, wanting to take the risk. I think that's fantastic. And just one thing, I mean, I know you said that you're consulting with a lot of players. Is there anything like fans can do to kind of put pressure on um, any organisations or to come out in, in support of of players like yourself? Is there anything that, you know, our listeners could to, could try and do to kind of protect the sport they love? I mean, is, is there any room for for fans to get involved in that respect? I think... That's tricky, but so tennis, for example, is not unionized, right? So we don't have any protection. We don't have any um, fallback or base salary or anything like that. You know, we're not like these big team sports, even here in North America, like the NBA or the NHL or the NFL or the MLB, where you have a union uh, negotiating on your behalf to try to make sure that you're not taken advantage of. So I would just say that whenever a fan hears a player voice their concerns about something, just to keep that in mind before they answer something like, well, just don't play then because that's like, that's like just telling somebody, Oh, you don't like your work. Well, just don't go to work then. Yeah. You know, it's, you want to try to find a positive solution and try to work towards something that will be better in the future than just sort of giving up on the spot. And in tennis, we don't have the luxury of, you know, just handing our, handing our feedback over to somebody else. Like we have counsel. Yes. And we have our board reps. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to get anywhere because you always have to, negotiate with the tournaments and the other governing bodies and generally speaking I'd say the players get like the short end of the stick and we're not privy to you know tournaments financials we don't know really how much anybody's making like player prize money that's that's public okay maybe not sponsorship deals and that sort of stuff but our prize money is public so why aren't you know their revenues public and why aren't we able to have a seat at the table when we negotiate for more prize money or different prize money distribution? Like we, we don't have really that strong of a voice in our sport. 
because we don't have any sort of legal representation backing us. So we just kind of, all we have are the channels of communication that we have. So just for fans to keep in mind that we're really just fighting for what's fair. We're not trying to be greedy. We are appreciative of the sport. We love the sport. Um, We love playing in front of fans. So I think that would just be one thing um, after receiving some, some feedback after I posted publicly about stuff, I guess, and certain comments that I've seen posted on other people's, um, you know, tweets or Facebook messages or stuff like that. So. Yeah, I think it's certainly an opportunity to, you know, to evolve, um, you know, from a player council to some, you know, something bigger, something greater that kind of gives more, you know, protection to players. Um, just kind of, you know, moving and talking kind of more generally and kind of moving away from from the US Open and about kind of doubles in the new normal, doubles on a, a tennis court in, in the new normal. Um, you know, when you do step out back out onto a, a tennis court, um, do you have any sort of um, idea in terms of what you think kind of are the biggest changes that are going to be to, uh, you know, when you step out um, onto doubles um, in this sort of, you know, new world that we're, we're finding ourselves in? Well, the only thing I could compare it to right now, I guess, is looking at what the NBA is looking at in terms of uh, restrictions. Like they don't want you to um, hug each other or fist bump or stuff like that, which is, you know, fine in doubles. You don't have to, you can, instead of giving each other a high five, you can high five with your rackets, you know, like that's not, that's not that big of a deal. Have you um, been practicing that in your, in your lockdown? <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe I should <laughs> because I, uh, I like high fives and, um, yeah, I like to like give a little hug at the end of the match. So it'll have to be a, a change of, of what I'm used to for sure. <laughs> Will we see more um, focus on like hand signals behind the back rather than kind of getting up close and whispering your strategy? <laughs> uh, do you think it'll be more focused on that? <laughs> Very possible, yeah. <laughs> which is which is kind of cool, I guess. But even now, sometimes we give each other hand signals, and there might be a time once a tournament where you forgot what you said and you'll do the opposite code or something and then <laughs> forget it I mean also yeah. playing without fans um it's obviously gonna completely change maybe the dynamic of, of a match you know no crowd kind of to cheer you on I mean I don't know is is that a big thing for you not having the energy of the crowd to kind of um feed off well, I love I love when I've played a good doubles match in front of a crowd because I, I know that they've appreciated the skill that they've seen and after a match, you know, them just just walking by and saying, Oh, that was really fun to watch or a great match or whatever it was, definitely gonna miss that side of things. But at the same time I understand that right now we we don't really have the opportunity to have fans in a safe way, I guess, unless you can figure out a way to really spread them out um, in the stands. But I'm not sure if that uh, expense is worth it for the tournaments as well, because then you'd still need to create some kind of very spacious fan village and food area and that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that's a very tough decision for some tournaments. Um, But it is what it is. It's okay. Like, yeah, it's not the priority, is it, at the moment? And I think it it, it would practically be quite difficult to 
kind of coordinate that. I think it's a long way off. Um, but it's a shame. And I know in other sports, they've been able to like, for people watching at home, like pipe the crowd noise in. But I'm not sure that would work for tennis because... <laughs> You know, the crowd noise, like they're supposed to be silent during play and then, you know, you'd hear it at the end of the point and I'm not sure they'd be able to match that up to the to the live event um, that's going on. But, I mean, <laughs> let's just, um, let's let's talk about something a bit more positive to finish on, Gabby, because, you know, obviously your career so far, you've, you've, just, you've achieved a lot of, you know, two, two Grand Slam titles, final of Wimbledon last year in the, in the ladies' doubles. What would you say has been your you know, your career highlights so far, if, if you had to pick one one moment? The Olympics in oh, 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was it. Um, it's always been a dream of mine to compete at the Olympics. And uh, so having been able to do that was, was pretty awesome. And it was also a goal of mine this year to, to make it to Tokyo. Um, mm. But hopefully next year, there'll be a chance. And uh, obviously, you know, it's Wimbledon fortnight at the moment. Um, as Kim said, you reached the, the ladies doubles final there last year. Um, are you kind of gutted? You don't, haven't had the opportunity to kind of go back and, you know, obviously try and go one step further. Are you, uh, are you, sad, to, are you sad to be missing it? Are you watching the, the Wimbledon highlights on, on TV? Yeah, it's sad. Um, mostly I'm sad, though, because I stay with such a lovely family um, in in Putney, actually. And uh, so I'm really, really missing staying with my, my friends there and uh, having them come out to the matches and support and having those home-cooked meals. So for me, my Wimbledon mm-hmm. experience, you know, it's it's really, it's really just lovely um, to come home to people that really have your best interests at heart and care so much and love to support you. And, and just sitting in the backyard, having a barbecue. That's one thing. It's such a, it's such a privilege to be able to do that because when we're on the road, we're in hotels a lot, most of the time by ourselves. So that's honestly the one thing that I miss the most right now. Of course you, you miss the, miss the Wimbledon rain as well. It's been, it's been raining in London today. So, uh, you must, I don't of course. mind the rain. <laughs> well, there's two roofs now, so I suppose there's always something going on if there's rain. But yeah, it's strange. I, I was uh, I was in Wimbledon last week and obviously normally, you know, there's a certain buzz around the place and the build up and it's it felt very flat. So it's um, really quite a sad sight. And obviously you said the Olympics this year was, was going to be a big thing for you. So fingers crossed it can go ahead next year. Um, but looking forward to like when we can you know, when you can get back onto the court and and perhaps once maybe things can return a bit more to normal, what what would your next kind of goal be um in terms of your career? Is it is it to win a ladies doubles title or or more mixed events or yeah. world number one or, or Olympic medal? Oh, I, I don't care about my ranking because I don't have any control over my ranking. Um but in terms of women's doubles, yeah, I would love to win uh, women's doubles grand slam i would love to win more mixed doubles titles that would be so much fun uh yeah so i would definitely say yes to the mixed <laughs> to the mixed and the women's doubles <laughs> slams, yeah oh we'd love to see that happen as well um <laughs> and i mean it's been fantastic talking to you gabby and you know i think your insight on everything that's going on um you know 
with the US Open and all the kind of announcements that have been made is, is just so valuable. And I think our listeners will really appreciate appreciate your views. And um, and also, I've I've always been like a fan of doubles, as I said, and I think it deserves a lot more, you know, justice. And um, normally at a slam, I can tell you, I'm, I'm normally to be found on a kind of outside court, sort of watching a bit mm-hmm. of uh, an epic doubles match going on. I find it often mm-hmm. a lot more entertaining than seeing kind of a singles match, um, you know, for five sets. I think doubles just provide so much more variety and fun. Um, but we're just going to end on a really non-tennis related question, which we... Um, well, we're going to ask all our, all our guests, our future guests, but you're the first. And, you know, we are a British tennis podcast. And of course, that means we do love our, our tea. So we have to ask you, Gabby, are, are you a tea drinker? And if you are, I mean, what's your favourite sort of tea that you like to have? I love tea. So okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you're asking this and not uh, not anything about coffee because I know nothing about coffee. Yeah, no, I love I love every single kind of tea, to be honest right now, um, though I'm really enjoying uh, tea. It's called Egyptian licorice, but like licorice in your tea adds this kind of like smoothness and natural sweetness to it so when I have my tea I don't put anything in it normally uh, unless it's like a really really bitter maybe black tea then I'll add a bit of sugar but otherwise I just drink any tea straight up usually in the morning I like to have green tea and then um, mid-afternoon or in the evening have something a little sweeter so yeah, right now the any tea that has licorice in it is kind of what I've been buying. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I I'm not much of a licorice person myself. I've had a few teas of phenylalanine, so maybe I'll have to I'll have to check it out. But um, I think that'll be a tough a tough one to beat with your uh, Egyptian licorice there. Um, so thank you very much. <laughs> and Gabby, um, where can <laughs> our listeners follow you on social media? I think is it mostly Twitter that you're kind of active on? What what's your handle? Yeah, I mean, I have um, the three major ones, uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but I guess I'm most uh, active on Instagram and Twitter, I'd say. Uh, So it's just Gabby Dabrowski, so G-A-B-Y-D-A-B-R-O-W-S-K-I. Yeah. Thank you. Um, listeners, uh, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode of Passing Shot Meets. Um, it's been really great having you on, uh, Gabby. Really interesting insight into the world of tennis, particularly on all of the, the issues um, with the, the US Open. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to to chat to you guys. Thanks for being tennis fans. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Thank you. And uh, yeah, listeners, um, yeah, if you've enjoyed listening to this uh, latest episode of The Passing Shot, of course, remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to us. And uh, yeah, if you are on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment. Yep. And you can also follow us on social media at Passing Shot Pod. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to ask us anything, you can also email the show PassingShotPod at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your thoughts um, about this episode and about everything that's going on in the tennis world in general. So do get in touch. But in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we hope you're safe. We uh, hope you're well and uh, we'll be back again shortly. Thank you and goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.